Listen now to the word of God. And to the angel in the, of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's nothing more unsettling than need. Lack that you don't have the resources to address. You feel weak. It can hit in any number of ways, but it's unpleasant in every single one of its expressions. You need a job and you have a solid resume, but you just don't match the profile of those who are being hired these days in your area of specialty. Your son just informed you of a personal struggle for which none of the current treatment models reflect your worldview or value structure. Your wife just said that she can't take anymore in a tone of voice that you've never heard. I could go on and on listing descriptions that awaken weakness and an awareness. And an entirely new definition of weakness just crashes over you at such times like an ocean wave and there's, there's just no way to put it into words. But it erodes the earth under your feet like a sinkhole and you feel like you're falling through darkness just waiting to hit the bottom. In the midst of all of this, Someone at work tells you that they think that faith is just a crutch for the weak to help them cope with the hardships of this life. And right now, as you hear that, you wonder if the picture of your own faith is even that rosy. And you may even wonder if it's actually real at all. It's not Christ that you doubt. It's you yourself 
just observing your own patterns of behavior and response. He's strong, but your faith feels like a patchwork. Scripture snippets and scattered thoughts and pious platitudes that even as you say them, they ring hollow. And you're pretty confident that your faith at the moment could barely stand against a summer breeze, not to mention a winter storm. Where do you turn for help? Friends, this pictures just a bit of what life may have felt like in first century Philadelphia, in the church in that city. As in Sardis, from last week, verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, the physical surroundings in Philadelphia pictured their spiritual state, the spiritual state of the church, pretty well. Philadelphia was a wealthy and well-located city. It was called the gateway to the east. It was founded in order to spread Greek ideals into eastern regions, Phrygia and Lycia and Mysia. But that location was also susceptible to earthquakes due to volcanic activity. It was destroyed by an earthquake, in fact, in AD 17. And one of the geographers of the first century said that there wasn't a wall in the city of Philadelphia that wasn't cracked and cracking. They knew weakness and frailty. They knew matters beyond their control. But it was more than just the physical surroundings because in the church it was in response to opposition that they were facing. They knew something about patient endurance though and they're commended for it in this letter. You heard it from Jesus himself and that commendation could prove helpful to us still today for those seasons where we feel weakness. Let's look at this letter under our four headings. You see them listed in your bulletin there with the breakout for this particular week. We have the ascription that makes sure we understand that this letter is from Jesus. That's in verse 7 here. Then the assessment, the whole assessment comes in one verse, verse 8. We have the assignment that doesn't show up until verse 11. But we have the assurance that breaks into this process early in verses 9 and 10. Then we come back to the assignment in verse 11, and then the assurance finishes in verses 12 and 13. Just the way this letter is structured, you can hear Jesus encouraging them. You can hear him meeting them in their need. You see him break in early to help them understand that he's with them and he's going to help them in the midst of their weakness. That in itself, before we even start looking at the content, is a helpful reminder to us this morning. So let's move through these four areas and hear what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia. A, a church that was named for the city, but the city itself, interesting, was not just named in anticipation of it being a city of brotherly love, the way we're, we think of it, but it actually means one who loves his brother. And the king at the time that... Um, that this city was founded, named it for his brother, whom he called Philadelphus. 
He loved his brother, and so he named the city after him. I'd like to think it's rooted in something a little deeper than that, but that is a touching story to know about. Let's see about the church in that city, though. Jesus identified himself here in verse 7 as holy and true. Certainly we have no quarrel with that, even though that's not found in the vision of chapter 1. For most of the way through these letters, we've seen Jesus identifying himself based on the vision that came in chapter 1, anchoring into that. But here, his opening statement, holy and true, that, that isn't found there. But you know what's interesting? It is the precise description of God that is used by the martyrs under the altar over in chapter 6. The martyrs who are in heaven at this point. In chapter 6, verse 10 says, they cried out to the Lord, the holy and true God, how long? We were just singing this together. We were singing this with the saints of heaven. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Then they were each given a white robe. Listen to this answer. We'll come to this in due course, but listen to the answer they're given right there in the very presence of Jesus. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's a sobering picture. There's a little insight into what God has intended for His people. They will suffer. And they may even be ushered into His presence through a martyr's death. But He is faithful to them, and they will, in that process, enter into their reward. That's who we hear addressing the church here, the one who is holy and true, the one who can give this answer to his people. He's saying to them, hang in there. Much more is going on here than just empty suffering. Much more is going on here than just immediate deliverance. The relief of the church is not the highest priority that's going on God is at work, and His people even in heaven, even in heaven, who are asking how long, are being given this answer. Where is our trust fixed? Is it fixed in our deliverance from the hard circumstances or in the faithfulness, faithful promises of our God in the midst of them? God has a plan. Do you find that encouraging this morning? That means that nothing we're experiencing is offline. It's playing out according to His sovereign plan and purpose. Then Jesus mentions here in verse 7, holding the key of David. This is also an interesting reference. It seems to harken back to verse 18 of chapter 1, but, but in a bit of an unusual way. There John referred to the keys of death in Hades, but here to the key of David... Obviously, the key is the link to that vision, but I'm not sure that's the best place to find background and help in understanding what the key of David is all about here. I think there's a clearer link to the story of Eliakim in Isaiah 22. To just summarize that quickly, in the days of King Hezekiah, there was a man named Shebna who served as steward over the king's household. So he's sort of the butler 
in the king's house. Shebna, though, hadn't been faithful in his responsibilities. He was looking after his own best interests. Shebna had been building an ornate grave for himself among the rich and the influential, while Jerusalem was under siege with its walls in disrepair. Can you guess how God responds to that? God doesn't like that. Hopefully that's not a surprise to any of us, but it's really interesting where the story goes in Isaiah 22 from that point. In pretty graphic terms, God said that He would remove Shebna. In fact, graphic doesn't quite do it. God says that He will wind him up like a ball and hurl him out into the desert. That's the picture. Sounds like Wile E. Coyote in a Roadrunner episode, doesn't it? And that's exactly the picture. But listen to Isaiah 22, verse 17. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. That's the Word of God. God wasn't happy with Shebna. What He shut for Shebna, no one would be able to reopen. And in his place, Eliakim would be given the key of David. That's Isaiah 22, verse 22. And when we read that verse, we read that I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. To get into the king's presence, you have to go through Eliakim. That's the key of David. That's the backdrop for this image here. Jesus uses this imagery as he writes to Philadelphia. It's pretty tough talk, wielding his sovereignty and his authority with, with little apparent wiggle room. Sometimes we sense great freedom when we encounter God's sovereign authority. At other times, our options, our actions are limited severely. Here, there's very little apparent wiggle room. He's the only one through whom we can gain entrance into the palace of the king to have an audience with him. We already know that Jesus is the door, John chapter 10. Now we hear that he holds the key to the door, right here in verse 7. But beyond all this even, he has the authority to open and shut the door as he wills. He's the one who determines who gets into the presence of the eternal king. And he's the one who determines who stays out. We see that made more clear in the next verse. So all this power, all this power that is evident in the way Jesus introduced himself here in verse 7 is going to come to bear right here in Philadelphia in the church that has little power. Jesus is letting them know he can handle the circumstances that they're facing. 
You feel weak? Friends, we serve a strong God. Amen? So we move into the assessment of verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Again, just as with all the churches, Jesus knew what was going on with Philadelphia. He knew their works. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we give account. Hebrews 4. And he has set an open door before the church in Philadelphia. And no one could decide to shut it. Regardless of the power that Philadelphia has or doesn't have. Doesn't matter one whit how little their power is in the world's terms. Friends, do you, do you hear that assurance to this weak and faithful church that lived in the midst of a hostile culture? Does it sound familiar when we talk about a weak but faithful church that lives in the midst of a hostile culture? Does it sound familiar to you? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This very passage that was directly alluded to in the letter to Sardis last week is brought to mind again here in Philadelphia. I think this is part of how these letters work. We've seen it before with mentions of one story, Balaam, for instance, that have echoes in the next story. It's not the next letter. It's, it's not as though... Uh, a direct reference is made again in the next letter, but it's worded in such a way that it draws you right back to what you just heard. There's a cumulative flow to these letters. Yes, he's addressing the circumstances in each individual church and doing so in ways that are just multifaceted and multi-layers, layered, drawing in their history, drawing in their geography, drawing in their experience, drawing in the life of the church tying it in with the previous church, anticipating something coming to the next church, and yet a relevant word to each of these seven first century churches and to every church since then who studies these letters together. There's a mark of the eternal, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, reliable word of God that's how it works, and we see it at work in these letters. So we just pause to take the time to move through them and see the connections. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The very passage we heard referenced in the letter to Sardis helps us here again in Philadelphia. It's not about their strength. It's not about ours in our day. It's all about His. This open door, what is this? It may have been literal, open door, a new place of meeting perhaps. They were, after all, experiencing persecution from the Jews. We see that in verse 9. So it may have been, they may have been shut out of the synagogue and been in need of an open door. Another possibility is it may have been an open door of opportunity for witness or the like. 
Such wording isn't unheard of in the New Testament. Paul talks, for instance, about a wide-open door for effective work that opened before him in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 16. And even though a door was opened for him in Troas, his spirit was not at rest due to other circumstances, 2 Corinthians 2. This is possible, but doesn't fit the context very clearly, does it? What seems most likely here is that Jesus is still talking about the door to the kingdom, the door to the presence of the king, to entry into his house and audience with him. He opened that door before these Philadelphians, the door of the kingdom, and despite their weakness, they remained faithful right there in their hard circumstances. They, they hung on, they endured, and now no one could take away from them their promised reward. No one could close the door on it. And Jesus is reassuring them of that. Weak as you are in comparison to those that you see around you, you do not need to worry about the fact that they might be able to close the door on your reward, not if you hang on and remain faithful, not if your trust remains fixed in Christ. Weakness and strength don't matter. When I am weak, then I am strong, 2 Corinthians 12. Well, this was the whole assessment that Jesus had of this church in Philadelphia. Like only Smyrna before them, he had no negative remarks for this church in Philadelphia. Even with so little power, they had kept his word and they had not denied his name. That is a glowing testimony. But it takes us to the assignment then. Because they had been faithful... Jesus promised to vindicate them. He, he made their oppressors acknowledge in their very presence with profound humility, verse 9, make them bow down before your feet. He made their oppressors acknowledge in their very presence that they're indeed and undeniably loved by God. That's what their opponents in Philadelphia are going to be called by Jesus to do. When, where, under what circumstances, what that will look like, we don't know, but it's a promise from Jesus to this church. This would be all the more humiliating considering who those oppressors were, namely the Jews, verse 9, who believe themselves to be the ones who know God and who are loved by God. But they're lying to themselves. Just as in Smyrna, back in chapter 2, verse 9, they're called here the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. These are ethnic Jews who believe themselves to have God's favor in an, undenying, an undeniable sense. But they believe that even while they refuse to accept Jesus as the promised Messiah. And by refusing to accept the sent one, they reject the only means of becoming God's beloved children. Even Jews have to come to saving faith in Christ to be reconciled to God. He's the one who's been promised all along. 
all the way back to the garden, not to mention through Abraham and through the patriarchs and through David and through the prophets. And then He finally comes. God's people can't reject the promised Messiah and expect to be reconciled to God. And that's the point Jesus is making here. All come to saving faith by one and the same means. Through the Messiah who was promised through the Jews and blesses all the nations through them. That's the promise to Abraham. That's the promise of salvation. Like many of the Jews during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, these were of their father the devil, just like Jesus said in John 8. So the Philadelphians' favored standing with God would be tough for the Jews to admit in that city. But in the midst of all this, it was the church that needed to seize and to hold fast what they had attained in Christ, to press on in endurance, not to let anyone lead them astray and in so doing rob them of their reward. That seems to be what the sense of, of uh, verse 11 there, let no one take your crown. So not let anyone lead them astray and in so doing rob them of their reward. It draws in the all-important if here that qualifies our salvation through all of the New Testament. Hebrews 3, 14, for instance, says it most carefully. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what the Philadelphian church is hearing. Hold fast. There's your assignment. Hold fast and you'll receive your reward. No one will take your crown. That which is promised to you will be yours. True saving faith, Jesus is saying, endures. It endures any and all hardships. That's the mark of genuine saving faith. Even in a position of weakness like these Philadelphians, your faith in Christ remains strong. And your life is lived for Him, not to curry the favor of the culture around you. That's part of what Jesus is alluding to then in verse 10 as we move into this assurance. So we go back and pick up verses 9 and 10 and then verses 12 and 13. This is part of what Jesus is alluding to in verse 10. He begins to offer his assurance to the Philadelphians and that actually begins in verse 9 with his assurance of his demonstrable love for them. It's part of their reassurance and it flows into verse 10. Because they have been faithful to him and to his name. Because they have kept his word. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, says verse 10. This idea is that the church has endured like Jesus endured. Imitating him. He was a faithful witness under hardship and persecution. Now they're proving to be faithful witnesses. Right here in Philadelphia. Enduring in the truth. Is no easy task in light of the sort of hostility and false accusation that Philadelphia was facing, but wasn't easy for Jesus either. And they're following in the steps of their Savior. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, you're going to know. You're, you're a faithful witness. You're being proven to bear the name of Christ well. 
And friends, it is no easier in our day to keep our eye on the ball than it was in theirs, is it? It's no easier in our day to keep our eye on the ball, to endure evil while continuing to be salt and light in the best biblical sense of the word. It's not easy in a hostile culture. It seems so much easier to get swept into criticizing government or the economy or public policy or something of that sort. Some of us, God help us, are more stirred by matters of government and policy than we are by the troubling number of people groups on this planet who haven't yet heard the gospel. Who haven't yet received the scriptures in their own language. This patient endurance that Jesus mentions here, this, this patient endurance that the church in Philadelphia was commended for hanging on in the midst of their hostile culture, even from a position of weakness, this patient endurance means keeping God's priorities first. Even when we may be right in the crosshairs of this world's rage. That, I think, is a good definition or at least illustration of patient endurance. Keeping God's priorities first in our lives, in our church, even when we might be right in the crosshairs of this world's rage. When the ways of God are in conflict with the world, we want to be on His side, not theirs. Our strength doesn't come from this world. Our deliverance doesn't come from this world. And deliverance is precisely what Jesus was promising to this church in the remainder of verse 10. He'll save us from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. That's what he says here in verse 10. Obviously, this isn't a literal hour, but a, a specified period of time, brief, intense, like Jesus speaking of the hour of his death. The targeted group of this trial are those who dwell on the earth, that's a common description in Revelation of unbelievers, or some suggest even idolaters. Chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 11, 13, 17. In each of those places, this description is used of the unconverted world. So I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon unbelievers. That's what Jesus says in this verse. Along with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, this is one of the key verses referred to regarding the promise and purpose of what we call the rapture. When the church will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that's where that language comes from. We know that God has not destined for wrath any of those whom he has chosen to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. We know that to be true. Therefore, the church will not experience this hour of trial that is coming on the rest of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. That raises a couple of big questions for us, though, because this 
is one of the most written upon verses in all of the book of Revelation. You think, you think of how much, is, how much is written about the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 10 draws more attention than pretty much any verse in the whole book. So a couple of questions. We're going to try to cut through a lot of fluff this morning and just hit the center of, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, a baseball image just flew into my mind. What makes baseball so hard to play, I've heard it said, is you're trying to hit a round ball with a round bat squarely. <laughs> right? That's hard. That's hard to do. We're going to try to do that with Revelation 3.10 this morning. One big question. How does a particular promise to the first century church in Philadelphia become an end times promise to all churches everywhere? It's a big question. And the second question is, what does this promise actually mean? What's it telling us? And believe me, we could spend a long time surveying the range of options of what verse 10 is telling us. So, answer to question number one, how does a particular promise to a first century church in Philadelphia become an end times promise for all churches everywhere? I would say we apply this promise to the church as a whole in the same way that we have done with all of the other teachings and promises that have come in this letter. As one commentator put it, if the church here is taken to be typical of the body of Christ, standing true to the faith, and here we would add in the thought, as he clearly did, that it's to the first century church at Philadelphia, but as we've seen all along, through them to the church in all times. So if the church here is taken to be typical of the body of Christ, standing true to the faith, the promise seems to go beyond the Philadelphia church to all those who are believers in Christ. I would say amen to that is the answer to question number one. Question number two, what's, what are we actually being promised? What's it telling us? Well, without getting caught up in vast linguistic and grammatical details, let me say that the fairest way to restate, I believe, exactly what's being communicated here, and I'm actually quoting this part from a commentator who does excellent linguistic work. David Oni in the, the, the word biblical commentary does good work in the language, right? He's, this is his language. He says, this verse says, I will preserve you from the time of affliction which will come upon the whole world. Apparent meaning, the exalted Christ seems to promise that the situation of the Philadelphian Christians will not be adversely affected by the hour of tribulation that is approaching. That seems both helpful in one sense and vague in another. Let me stay with this for another minute or two. Much ink has been spent arguing whether a particular Greek word here, a, a brief word ek, from... I will keep you from the hour of trial. Whether it's best taken to mean free from, meaning untouched by, that's what it sounds like David Oney is saying, or whether it means apart from, out of. I will keep you out of the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To cut to the chase, I favor the idea that Jesus is promising to protect the church through the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world without removing them from it. 
And I believe this for three basic reasons. We could give a dozen, we could give a hundred, but three help get the heart of the matter, I believe. First, I believe Jesus is speaking here about the open door to the kingdom that he has set before this church. Their endurance in faith is the ground of their receiving that reward. So the immediate context is endurance in trial. That's what's happening in Philadelphia. It's not their absence from that trial. It's their endurance through it. Second, throughout these seven letters, trial and testing, endurance and conquering have been central themes. Suddenly to promise deliverance out of all that just doesn't seem to fit the whole tenor of these seven letters or of the overall letter of Revelation as a whole. Worship, obey, endure, we have said, is in essence what this letter is about. It's not just the title of our series, it's a summary of the teaching that we hear in this book. And endurance is at the heart of it. So suddenly to promise deliverance out of all that just doesn't seem to fit with the whole tenor of the seven letters or the overall letter as a whole. Third, in the only other similarly worded statement in the New Testament, this meaning seems to be favored by Jesus himself in his high priestly prayer for his disciples. He said in John 17, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's Jesus' prayer for his disciples before going to the cross. So for those three reasons at the moment, we could talk more about it if it would be helpful. And I've told you before, questions. You're welcome to send in questions and we'll find a, a setting to answer those. You know, I haven't received a single one yet. It's all right. I don't mind. That just means I know that the exposition has been so undeniably clear and helpful <laughs> No, but this is, this is a sensitive point, and we don't want to make light of it in the slightest. It's hard. It's caused much division, especially in the last hundred years in the church on this side of the Atlantic. It needn't. What we agree on with those who have a slight difference on how to handle this is so vastly beyond where we disagree. It shouldn't divide. It should actually just generate good conversation. It should press us into the Word of God to understand it and appreciate what's being taught. This understanding, though, that I'm suggesting here also makes best sense then out of the very next verse that comes up. If this is how we understand what Jesus' promise means, I will keep you, I will keep you safe through that hour of trial that's coming on the whole world, just like he kept Israel safe when the ten plagues were being poured out on Egypt. The wrath of God falling from heaven. And his people were kept safe. Some of this stuff not even happening in the land of Goshen. We've got an image for what this could look like. So this understanding makes best sense of the next verse as well, I believe, which sounds like the Philadelphians are living in a constant state of potential compromise. Verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. It sounds like words to people who are suffering. 
I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So nobody may cut in on your reward, telling you it's worthless to stand up in opposition against this world, to continue proclaiming the gospel in the midst of it. You press on. You keep believing God and His Word. Keep staying true to His name. No one has seized your crown and you enter into the joy of your Master. This then leads us most clearly into verse 12 as well, I believe, and the completion of this assurance section. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So what's Jesus saying here? He says, you'll be the very embodiment of strength and solidity, of endurance and identification and intimacy with God. His name will be all over you. And you will be safely His. These folk come into the presence of God through the fire. Their robes are washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 14. They're crying out how long they've forfeited their lives, but until all those appointed to forfeit their life in the same way is accomplished, this world is going to continue. These are people who know suffering and who have faithfully endured. So what is the Spirit saying to the churches here, verse 13? Essentially, my friends, as we talk about just distilling the message to the Philadelphian church so that it means something to us today, what the Spirit is saying to the churches is never deny the name of God under any circumstances. Don't cave in to the accusations and persecutions of people in this world who think they have a name but really don't. Hold fast. Don't compromise. And you'll bear His name for all eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. You'll be like a pillar in my own house, God says. One that will never be rattled by an earthquake. You'll never crumble like the walls of your city are presently doing. You'll bear the name of my city. You'll bear the name of my son. You'll be eternally secure and no one will ever try to seize your crown again. Hold fast. Don't compromise. That's your promise. When you finally arrive there, no one will be calling you names like bigoted or phobic or hateful or exclusivist or judgmental or narrow. Not anymore. No one will try to guilt you or shame you into conformity with the world any longer. Not anymore. Do you look forward to that day? You'll have conquered in the truest sense of the word, in the ultimate sense of the word. 
and you will have received your reward. You'll have walked through the open door into your eternal reward, never to return again. So hold fast, friends. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. There are ungodly all around us who think they're right and who think we're wrong. And our calling is to answer them with gentleness and humility and patient endurance, just as Philadelphia was commended for here. Some of you see this every single day in the office, especially when an ambitious boss insists on questionable reporting and and no one seems to have a problem with it but you. Others of you see it when you visit family for holidays and so-called broad-minded or outright pagan relatives think they're on the side of the angels in every conversation. Students, you, you see it in confidently arrogant teachers and classmates who've bought the lie and believe that they've disproven all need for God. We face it. All of this is just like the Jews of Philadelphia who taught or who thought that they were one thing when they were really quite another. But in the process of thinking they were something, thinking they had a name, thinking they had a place, they made the church feel small and weak and marginalized and unloving and ineffective and out of touch, pressuring them incessantly toward further conformity. What's the bottom line? What's the word? Hold fast. Hold fast. And that means hold fast in faith. That means trust Jesus in the midst of the struggles of this world so that no one may seize your crown. And Jesus himself said it. He gave us the word we most need to hear right here. And it comes back again in the final chapter. He said, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Hang on. Do you think that depends on your strength and mine? Hopefully not. Hopefully we've set that up already at the beginning of this letter. This is a church of little strength, but they can hold on. Why? Because they have simple faith in a great and powerful Savior. They trust Him. They trust Him more than they trust the headlines on the evening news or the latest accusation that has been shouted from a procession somewhere. They trust Jesus more than that. They're holding on and no one is going to take their crown. The open door before them is going to be entered in due course as our Savior and King enables. And we are moving toward that door resolutely, focused eye, straight walk, proclaiming the gospel all along the way. There's the calling of the church in hard times. Let's pray together. And as we pray, those who are going to help serve communion and those who are going to lead us in music, please return to the front. Father, this promise...
to Philadelphia is amazing and refreshing and reassuring. Thank you for your faithfulness in providing it. Help your people, Father, embrace it and be comforted and encouraged and strengthened by it. Help us not to argue and fight over it, but to trust it and to enter into the grace that you've supplied through it. Press us, Lord God, into deepened fellowship with one another, even as we press on in our walk of obedience before you as your people. And help us, like Philadelphia, to be proven faithful, to not neglect or turn away from your word or your name in these challenging days. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.